This is Trep Wire for the week ending January 21st, 2022. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Darren King, Head of CMBS. And joining us today is Pasquale Cardone, founder of PC2 Capital, a private investment firm that focuses on commercial real estate securities. This week, we discussed the risk and reward of debt versus equity in the commercial real estate space. Given what we've seen, and we talk about this every week in the pod, risk with markets, business cycle, and asset types. And I don't want to brag you up there, Pasquale, but you have been recognized for your accurate predictions in CMA. So we'd be remiss if we didn't ask for some of your predictions in the market. Thank you. I, I think maybe I could just start with the big picture quickly and we'll, we'll get more in depth from there. And just as a quick introduction, you know, Pasquale Cardone, as you said, founder of PC2 Capital. And uh, before I started PC2 in 2020, I was a CMBS trader at Citi, held a similar role uh, at Wells Fargo Securities before that. And then before I joined the sell side, I was a, a global bond portfolio manager at Alliance Bernstein. So, you know, kind of big picture, where are we in, in commercial real estate and commercial real estate securities? So in PC2, we, we really think we're kind of mid-cycle, we'll call it in general, where economic growth has been fairly solid. We, we've really rebounded. And we still have accommodative monetary policy. The Fed is going to start raising rates, which, which they should, given where we are in, in the cycle. And they're going to start unwinding QE as well. So, you know, how we think about it is we're really focused mid-cycle on both sector and individual security selection. And at the moment, we're finding better risk-reward in, in REIT equities, specifically in small and mid-cap REIT equities, uh, than in CMBS. And that's really because historically REIT equities can perform well in an inflationary and rising rate environment. And that's due to contractual rent steps. Or if you have shorter uh, lease-term properties, you can also, you know, adjust your your lease rates at the end of those terms pretty quickly, you know, but for, for CMBS, it's a little tough for us now because the, the firm we focus on kind of double digit unlevered yields, which is very hard to find in CMBS given where, where spreads and yields are now. But from time to time, we still are finding some interesting things to do in, in CMBS, which, you know, that's kind of in the seasoned lower dollar price uh, part of the market, which we would say have convexity in the bond world or, or negative empirical duration, meaning, you know, as rates go up, the dollar price should go up and those securities should do well as, as the credit uh, improves. So we're going to let Darren kind of go into some of the, the more nitty gritty questions about why you like certain asset classes over others. But for those that don't know, PC2, and I'm not talking out of school here, this, this has been mentioned by Commercial Mortgage Alert and others, uh, the returns have been terrific since the beginning, outpacing uh, their benchmark by almost 10 points. And according to Commercial Mortgage Alert, uh, I believe top five uh, in their cohort in terms of returns in 2021. So congratulations on, on that, Pasquale, kind of navigating a, uh, an interesting market, to say the least, and for having uh, a terrific 2021. Thank you. It wasn't a, it wasn't a straight path, but uh, it's definitely been interesting. <laughs> uh, it, it never is, but uh, you know, with all of these, these time periods, we look back over time and we see that there were big big winners, right? Coming out of the great financial crisis, it was Appaloosa that really put a lot of money to work and, and took a lot of risk. And it turned out uh, incredible for them. And, and, and it isn't easy and it's never a straight line, but uh, kudos to you for having such great returns thus far. With that, I'll turn it over to Darren to kind of talk about asset class differentiation, what you like and what you don't. Like. Yeah, thanks, Manis. And, and Pasquale, thanks for joining us today. You know, you mentioned you kind of have a unique 
position with your fund where you can kind of go back and forth between you know the public equity side and then the debt side you know in the cmbs space and you mentioned obviously you know the equity side the REITs space is, is more interesting now the, than the cmbs side you know talk to the volatility of cmbs or, or maybe the lack thereof that there's been over the last year we obviously saw huge moves maybe more volatile than anything else in cmbs back you know march april of 2020 but it seems like a lot of that has just been sucked out of the market and it's a very you know again kind of low yielding um, stable sector, whereas other other aspects of the commercial real estate space, there's still a lot of volatility, still a lot of disagreement as to you know what directions things are going to go. You know, when we think about CMBS in 2020, the the volatility was incredible, and like you said, it's been kind of a one way train since that volatility. But when I was still on the desk at City in kind of March and April of 2020, some CMBS securities, even single asset single borrower securities, which is one loan, and some of these are very high quality infill type of properties that went from par to 40 cents in a matter of weeks, which we hadn't seen that type of volatility since the great financial crisis. And then part of the reason I started PC2 was to, to try and take advantage of the investment opportunities and that volatility. But by the time I got the fund started by November of 2020, a lot of those CMBS opportunities had already uh, retraced and, and rallied back. So I think the ability to look at REIT equities as well gives another dimension to, to really think about risk reward across different parts of the market. And and be able to focus on the you know, highest conviction areas. And there's a lot of overlap between CMBS and REITs, which I think complements the space well. And you know, as you said, in, in CMBS, things have come back, but it might not be the broad-based trade that it was in 2020 now. There's still some pockets of opportunity, and we still find some interesting things to do here and there. And, and CMBS, in the context of a portfolio, offers uh, high current income which is positive, plus that lack of volatility actually helps dampen the overall portfolio of volatility if you have uh, equities and read equities, which can be fairly volatile since um, you know, they can be lower liquidity and have, have a lot of retail involvement. Were you surprised at the lack of volatility, you know, let's say over the last six months? And were you surprised at, at the pace of the rebound, right? It seems like hotel debt on the CMBS side or, or deals that had heavy hotel concentration rebounded well in advance of any kind of turn in occupancy or rev par or anything else like that. Did that take you by surprise? So I, I'll say no. I, I feel like the rebound would be pretty rapid because just, just to give high level numbers, the monetary and fiscal response thinking on the kind of macro level was essentially unprecedented on a global scale. So just to give some quick item numbers. So during the great financial crisis, I think the fiscal response in the US, the fiscal easing was something like 6% of GDP over two years or so. During 2020, the federal government did fiscal easing on the scale of 20% of, of GDP, which outside of wartime is, has never been done in, in modern financial history. Um, on top of the Fed, lowering rates to zero, plus instituting quantitative, quantitative easing, plus buying all sorts of different assets they had never bought before, corporate bonds, other things, ETFs. So I, I think that is what really um, caused the rebound and, and made people start thinking much further ahead than they probably would have if you went back to the great financial crisis. So, and, and usually when we think about recoveries, it usually travels kind of um, you know down the capital structure where you're going to start at the top, triple A's. Then you're going to go to credit and the bond market. And then after all that recovers, then you kind of go down to equity, et cetera. So, so that's the path that 
it followed this time and is normal historically based on uh, based on patterns. So in commercial mortgage alert every year, they have actually twice a year, they have predictions for where spreads are going. They take a, you know, a dozen or two dozen major market players, traders, investors, and so forth, and they ask for their point of view. You know, you're among the most bullish when it comes to tightening among the triple B sector. So it sounds like you think that this recovery in that part of the market isn't over yet, right? That there's more, and that kind of is consistent with what you said, right? It starts at the AAA and goes down the curve. It sounds like you think yeah. there's more juice there. Well, yeah, I think, I think that's interesting because, you know, um, at the middle of the year, last year, I was one of the most negative on spreads on new issue triple Bs. And I think I was maybe second closest or something on that. And the reason really was new issue was going to pick up. We were at historically tight all-in yields. It was something like 280 basis points. We're actually trading through high yield, which usually there's some basis between CMBS and high yield. And at some point, the pandemic was going to end and move to something endemic, which would mean rates would have to go up and there would be some volatility. So those are all the factors I was thinking about into year-end, which, which happened to play out on top of the new issue technical that really hurt on the run triple Bs um, as there was kind of a deluge at the end of the year and it's a less liquid time of year. Now, you know, I'm starting to go the other way because we've already reacted to these things. So one of the hardest things to figure out as an investor is what, what's already built into the price you're paying. And CMBS has sold off more than high yield, right? Over this period, CMBS triple Bs on the run triple Bs are something like 90 basis points wider, but, you know, high yield, uh, the high yield index is maybe 40. So we've underperformed that. Um, now we're readjusting to the new kind of rate regime that we're going into. It's a, it's a rising rate environment. And I think CMBS has room to tighten, especially on the run that we're speaking about. Um, as people readjust to this, they see that it's cheap to high yield. They see that the yields are actually pretty good versus relatively low nominal yields that we're still in, even if you think rates are going to go up. So I think the credit curve is more likely to to flatten in this scenario than steepen, meaning triple A's might sell off a little bit as the risk-free rate becomes a larger part of your all-in yield. And then, you know, triple B's or credit bonds might tighten a little bit as people just look for more yield somewhere as the cycle progresses. For those of you that missed it, Pasquale threw this in as a parenthetical very quickly. He was closest to the mark, according to the CMA poll from the last time they ran this poll in terms of picking where the triple B spreads would be. So somebody to listen to when you're talking about predictions going forward. So and I'll throw it back over to you, Darren. So when you talk about those triple B predictions, uh, what the commercial mortgage alert was looking for was predictions on the conduit market, which is the multi, multi-borrower, multi-loan market. One of the interesting things about that space is that it's shrunk considerably relative to the single asset market. And it's even smaller than the series CLO market, which has exploded in terms of issuance. You kind of predicted, even with that dearth of issuance, a widening in spreads. How do you see volumes in that market picking up or staying the same or even declining further uh, in terms of conduit origination kind of going forward for the next you know, six months to a year? I, I still think that we're going to see similar trends. And there's been somewhat of a, a structural shift in, in the market where SASB issuance, I think, is going to run higher. Series CLO, that's a little harder to predict. Um, but I think SASB is probably going to run higher than, than Conduit. And the main reason is, uh, one, from the investor perspective, a lot of investors like the fact that they can almost construct their own portfolio. They know that they like industrial. They know that they like multifamily. Maybe they don't like hotels. So they can construct a SASB portfolio around those 
you know, those themes. And in conduit, you know, the, the market has really changed a lot over the last 10 years. And we think to, you know, before the great financial crisis, you had these huge fusion deals that could be three to 5 billion. It was really SASB deals plus a conduit deal kind of all mixed together. Now the market's breaking that up. And part of the reason is you have large private equity players, Blackstone, KKR, these other guys that have launched huge PE funds and using SASB financing just makes more sense for them and, and really aligns the way their funds are set up where they have flexibility for prepayment. They have you know flexibility on how they operate those assets and, and then can lever kind of the returns on those assets. So I, I don't really think that setup is going to change unless something bigger changes in the, in the broader markets. So you, you mentioned those Blackstones, Apollos, Brookfields of the world. How does that affect like the, you know, mid cap and, and I guess even some of the large cap REITs in terms of their approach to acquiring assets when you have Blackstone and Brookfield able to go out there and scoop up everything, get great financing in, in, in the single asset, single borrower space. How do they react? Are they getting in the game the same way? Isn't it historically REITs have, have actually liked conduit loans, have actually liked 10-year fixed rate type of debt, where the PE funds typically go for a more flexible approach? Are they following that playbook? Are they going to you know, shift strategy or do they continue to follow the course that they've, they've successfully had for 20 years? So I, I think it's interesting for small and mid-cap because this, this to me actually gives them another out where you've seen Blackstone actually buy some small and mid-cap REITs because a lot of these names can trade at discounts to their net asset value. And some have good reason to, maybe there's high debt, et cetera. And some trade at a discount uh, just because the, the market doesn't understand the story or maybe doesn't believe in that story enough. And then a Blackstone or someone can come in and buy that entire REIT and then kind of collapse that discount when they get to the assets. So I think it, it makes it interesting because it's just, again, it's another out that some of these REITs have and another way to, to kind of close that, that discount, the NAV, that, that we see a lot of these names, you know, trading with in the public markets. You were at the higher end of the spectrum where you thought the 10-year note outlook would be um, going into mid-year. And I think based on where we are uh, at the time of this taping, I think you predicted 205, I believe, which was a few basis points off what was the highest rate. And I think we're already at 185 and have moved up since that time. How, did, you know, how does that start playing into, you know, rising rates start playing into, um, you know, REIT performance, cap rates on assets and, and sort of their ability to, to sort of deliver returns and really deliver levered returns to investors, which is a key, you know, key aspect of, you know, of, of the REIT program? The risk-free rate is extremely important for, for commercial real estate. And I, I think, you know, th this is, it's definitely interesting. It's something that, you know, we try and think a lot about at, at PC2 is obviously, we invest bottoms up um, at the security level, but we have to try to think about the macro risks and, and factor that into the portfolio level decisions on how we hedge or what asset classes maybe we're looking at. And if we were to redo that poll today, um, I would assume most people would be much higher because there's some recency bias and, and a lot's changed in the last four to six weeks since I think some of these numbers were given. So, you know, 205 might, might end up being low when we go forward six months. I think right now we've probably gone a little bit too far with, with the rate hike assumptions. Um, we haven't even had the first Fed meeting of the year, and they're not supposed to raise for another three months. So I, I think the market's getting a bit ahead of itself right now. But I think it, it really says two things about the market. We've seen big moves because it's not just the ultimate size of the move, but the rate of change. And the rate of change has been very rapid the last few weeks. And you had you know the two-year treasury go from 
you know, 26 basis points to over 100. It's just very aggressive moves. And what does that mean for asset levels and asset prices in the commercial real estate market? Well, you know, I think the tighter cap rate properties, people might have to recalibrate some assumptions there. So if we think of uh, industrial is a good example where some industrial common equities traded a, a two-handle implied cap rate. You can only justify a two-handle if you think there's going to be continued asset price, price growth plus rent growth, which makes sense in a zero-yield world with negative real rates. Nominal rates go up and real yields come back to something more historically normal and probably positive. It gets much harder to justify a, a two-handle cap rate, especially when you factor in your cost of capital, which is what you're talking about. So you know, REITs really need to grow and they need to buy assets and those assets have to be accretive purchases to their cost of capital for it to make sense for shareholders. And I, I think there's going to be an adjustment in, in some of the thought process behind this. And you know, th this might hurt some of the tighter cap rate properties, but it could be good for, for some other properties because rates are going up for the right reasons. Things are getting better, right? And the Fed is normalizing because economic growth is better, unemployment's lower. Right, COVID is transitioning from something that's pandemic to endemic. These are all positive things, and I think should be good for you know what we'll call the reopening basket of, of commercial real estate, which we thought of as hotels, retail, office. So you mentioned office right there at the end, and I feel like that's one of the most interesting property types in the market because it's a place where there's a big divergence of opinion. Curious on on your thoughts on you know remote hybrid work versus you know everyone back to the office. Yeah, like you said, I think office and probably hotel are the, the two most interesting areas in the market, but maybe more so office today because the, the views are so divergent on this property type. And it's funny because historically office has been thought of one of the most stable property types, especially, you know, CBD office, just, just given, you know, infill locations, high land values. But now that that's really changing with work from home and, you know, it's kind of hard to, to talk about some of this stuff with all, without thinking about what's kind of assumed in pricing already. Because when we say, yeah, there's a risk to office, work from home could be more entrenched, um, a lot of the pricing already reflects that in, in many areas of the market, um, especially in, in you know, read equities, where some names can be 30 to 40% off pre-pandemic, which is a pretty, pretty aggressive repricing on what you think those asset values are. So even if you think there's some work from home, you've kind of priced in a lot of the bad news. We're starting to see net absorption uh, you know, turn positive, which which is pretty good. And we're seeing the fundamentals change in some of these markets. We're seeing tech companies uh, add additional space or buy buildings, you know, Google, Facebook. There's news stories every couple of weeks that even places with permanent work from home policies are still trying to add good office space and good markets where there's a strong knowledge worker base. So I'm, I'm not convinced, you know, work from home is going to fundamentally change office forever. I think as the pandemic fades, um, this also might revert a little bit back to how it was. I'm not saying completely five days a week in the office, but might get a little more normal. And, you know, I, I think there's actually some interesting opportunities in, in office properties, especially if you can pick the operators and markets that can do well. So just one more question on the office side. You know, we've seen some big projects in New York and Chicago and other places, brand new buildings, you know, kind of thinking like the the one by Grand Central, one Vanderbilt, I think it is, lead certified, really high end, able to get really high paying tenants, sold out very quickly. You know, where does that leave the B and the C guy, you know, the operator of those types of properties that really need 
probably substantial upgrading to compete on the ESG front, don't have the floor plates that are needed or the amenities that are needed to attract some of those Facebook and Amazon and Googles of the world. You know, give us a sense of, you know, how they look in your world compared to some of the operators of the really new and, and class A stuff. Yeah, I think it's a good point. You know, look, a lot of companies are trying to make the office more like a communal space that employees want to go to, can congregate in. And if you go a few days a week, you enjoy going in, not you're going into a, you know, a dated office where you sit in a cube and um, it's not, you know, kind of a, an interactive environment so you can connect with coworkers again. So, you know, look, I agree. I think some B and C assets are, are going to struggle and there's going to be a lot of CapEx that has to be spent on some of those assets to kind of modernize them, refit them and make employees want to go into these spaces. So there's, there's kind of two ways I think about it where, the newer buildings are interesting. They're getting very high price per foot numbers. They tick all the boxes for ESG, lease certification, all these things that, that a lot of companies uh, are focused on and would like, and employees want to be in those spaces. But when you think of even B and C properties, some of the pricing is a bit too pessimistic because if you take Manhattan, for example, you're going to have underlying land value. You have alternative uses. You have other things that can happen. And you know, if you think there's a, a housing shortage, well, these are large buildings that can be turned into uh, multifamily. Obviously, that costs money, and, and there's a, a capex, capex expense to that, but some companies have, you know, large amounts of cash on their balance sheet, can fund themselves very cheaply through public markets. So I think there's, there's alternative uses for some of these spaces that, that could also help take some of the supply off the market that people are worried about. We're going to check back in with you, you know, down the road and see what PC2 does for uh, amenities. See if you in install one of those <laughs> those slides to go from floor to floor and, you know, or, or maybe one yeah. of those fire poles that uh, make it seem like a, a firehouse, you know, see how you have to compete for for talent down the road. I'm looking forward to the video of spinning down the, the fire pole. That'd be an interesting <laughs> part of the investor letter, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the online version of the investor letter, but it wouldn't be a Trepwire podcast if we didn't talk about retail. Um, so obviously, Crushed in 2020, recovery in 2021, really not back to you know where levels were you know, in REITs or just in NOI performance. But what do you see for 2022? So like you said, re retail has been one of the most interesting sectors. They're kind of like offices right now where there's a lot of divergent views. That's how retail was you know, a year ago, two years ago. A lot of divergent views, kind of debate between which retail is going to make it, which isn't. And I think some interesting investment opportunities. So you know, at, at PC2, actually, our retail kind of bets were the top returning positions in the fund last year, and that, that really helped uh, the returns. And part of that was because market pricing just got so pessimistic in 2020, and even in parts of early 2021, that the, the risk-reward got skewed uh, really to the upside, and you really have more convexity on the way up because prices moved so far down that the market was pricing in too much. And I think the really interesting thing that we took away from kind of last year is the best and most well-located infill, you know, retail actually held up pretty well. Um, and rents and occupancy did not fall as far as, you know, the market thought it might, which really helped prices recover fairly, fairly quickly, um, you know, on both the physical assets and on the common equity of, of some of the, you know, the sponsors and the REITs. So I think that was the big theme. And then also, Within retail itself, if you think of you know strip centers, retail strip centers, in late 2020, 
you know, there was the common equity of some retail strip centers were trading at implied nine to 10 cap rates. Today, they trade at five to six cap rates and the assets they own, if it's in an infill location, could trade at a four handle cap rate if it's grocery anchored. It's just a massive turn. And I think that has to do with the resiliency people see in, in those better, you know, properties. So for 2022, I don't think those themes really change. I think you're going to continue to see the bifurcation between the well-located class A solid properties and kind of those, those weaker retail assets that maybe they need to be redeveloped. That's going to be bought by someone that's going to try and turn it into a multi-use, you know, maybe they put a hotel or some, you know, uh, multifamily, something else in there to, to make that space make sense. But there's probably some inherent land value. And I think this year, the most interesting parts of the market is really, we'll call maybe the lower to mid quality retail assets that are well located in a decent market that you have a different view and you think could turn out okay. And we've seen, and CMBS is a great example, um, some malls have had very difficult outcomes. And then some malls you didn't think would have a good outcome have had great outcomes. And when you look at certain CMBS securities, especially in the conduit space, you could have a fulcrum bond, meaning the, the bond that the market thinks could take losses. So that's almost like an equity security. When one of these assets has a better than expected recovery, that 50 cent bond could now be par. So I think those are the more interesting places. You still have divergent views, but you really got to pick your spots carefully, both from a security selection and then underlying asset and, and market selection. So we, we talk a lot about, and, and you did a good job of it here, the asset itself, how does the operator play into this, whether, you know, their size or capital position, you know, a small operator owning one great asset versus a bulge bracket operator with a large portfolio? How does that factor into, you know, the analysis? So when we think about the, the sponsor really comes down to the quality of the sponsor. Do they have the financial wherewithal? If they're a public, publicly traded company, that's good because they have a lot of outlets and a lot of ways to raise financing to help them with that asset, which is important. You know, you also want to know what's their commitment to the asset, meaning what's their basis? Do they have cash in the asset? Did they do a cash out refi a few years ago? Do they have a financial incentive to stay with that asset and see it through? So I think the, those are the two most important things. And if you see a, a small sponsor doesn't have access to capital markets, um, did a cash out refi, that's going to be kind of tough if they run into financial trouble because what's their incentive to, to keep it going and what's their ability versus a large sponsor that has cash in, maybe did a redevelopment, very high incentive to keep it going, much more likely to see it through the, the turbulence. And also, I would argue some of the bigger retail assets, um, special servicers and CMBS probably don't want to take these assets over because they're very capital intensive. They might not have access to national uh, leasing networks, things like that. They'd rather work out a deal with, with a large sponsor to, you know, in the best interest of the trust, just to get the best recovery they could. You talked about uh, a few minutes ago, hotel being very, very interesting to you right now. Tell us why. And so I think, I think hotel, you know, there's last year, there was more divergent views, but, but still it's really interesting because some areas of that market have, have really recovered. And if you look at, uh, you know, resort hotels, you know, I'm based in Miami here in Miami, uh, average daily rates of ADRs, as we say, are, in some cases, 30% above 2019 levels, 30% above. It's, it's a huge difference um, than where we were. And I think it just shows that in hotel, there's just a lot of pent up demand from individuals to travel. 
Um, the work from home has also created opportunity for people to, to travel more and be remote, but also hotels are overnight leases effectively. So a hotel operator can raise their rents every day if they want to. Um, and that's very important in an inflationary environment. But yet when you look at public markets, they're not really giving some of these operators the credit they deserve for, for what these cash flows are going to be um, in the future when you, you factor some of these things in. And it's interesting because if you look at the private markets, we're seeing some hotels trade off of 2019 cash flows at a 5% cap rate. But when you look at the public equity of some of the operators, that public equity trades at a discount to the replacement costs of where that portfolio would trade. So, you know, if you see the assets privately trading almost flat to where they would have been pre-pandemic, the cash flows, you know, they haven't completely come back, but certain markets have done very well. Certain property types have, have done very well, as we said, resort. Um, the, the public markets just aren't giving, giving enough credit, you know, in my view, where it should be if you if you take everything together. And that is and that is pretty interesting. And part of it might be volatility, but when we look past it, again, and we think the pandemic's gonna be in the rear view at some point in the, the future and, and be more endemic, I think that's that's a better risk reward area still. You, you mentioned leisure travel, you know, a couple of times in that last response. Does that mean you're bearish on the business travel side of it? Or, you know, do you think that recovery is just a little bit slower? I think that recovery is a little slower. It's it's a little more uncertain. Um, it might take more time, but it, it's going to come back because I think there's, you know, Zoom fatigue and all these other things that business kind of needs to be done in person in some instances and to build relationship in different industries. You know, people need to travel and get back to some of those routines, which is going to happen. We've seen conferences come back again here in Miami. I feel like this entire month of January, it's been a conference every week. Um, and I've been to, uh, I think, three conferences in the last month. So it, it's starting to come back and people are feeling more comfortable. Look, the conferences aren't 100% uh, occupied like they were pre-pandemic, but people are getting more comfortable. They're coming back and that's going to flow through to, to you know, more business travel and, and higher urban occupancy rates. And I think some operators see that and are trying to position for it. And if they can get the right prices on some of those assets, that, that's what some people are looking for now. So you said you're seeing hotels transact five cap rates level off of 2019 cash flows, but still that discount in the public equity markets. Does that make you more cautious in terms of fresh lending on hotels? If they're trading at these sort of pre-pandemic type cap rates, the equity discount so significant, you know, is that potentially a, a trouble spot as far as the lending markets are concerned? It depends on the leverage point. And I think lenders are not giving extremely high leverage on some of those assets, which is building in a, a cushion off that valuation. So I, I think that kind of naturally gives you, you know, some comfort is uh, you do have that cushion, you do have lower LTV. So you, you have room in, in case that is a little bit off. But I think there's been, again, there's a lot of money raised. We talked about the, the PE space where that money has to be invested in certain timeframes and people are trying to play this recovery. Um, and we're seeing it, you know, come through. And now that more travel restrictions are being lifted, I think that's going to flow through to, to more dollars into, into a lot of these assets and better cash flows. So we have listeners that pay very close attention to things that we say. So are there any, and this is definitely a Manus question, any views that are contrarian to the market, something that you kind of are an outlier on? You know, I think that the, the two biggest contrarian views are most likely in hotels and office, which 
I think I've kind of spoken to both a little bit where it's not completely broad based, but there's pockets that I think make a lot of sense. And especially in some of the tougher retail names, if you can get comfortable with some of those asset specific stories, to me, those are very interesting because these sectors, not a lot of people are focusing on them, especially office right now. I, I don't think there's a lot of people that are willing to take the, the risk of stepping into that sector. And if you can find those stories and individual companies and assets within the sector that it just has something unique to it, that's where you're going to get, I think, better returns and, and outperform. So I think that's that's probably where we're we're a little bit different. And then also, you know, we've been avoiding some of the, as I mentioned, the tighter cap rate properties, which is probably the most popular, which is uh, industrial. We've been a little cautious on and in certain parts of multifamily, still like Sunbelt multifamily, you know, where you have population growth, low taxes, uh, business friendly environment, things like that we we like. But um, I think the tighter cap rate things have to have to start adjusting fairly soon, especially if, if the Fed does move a little faster than people think. So we've seen, you know, tremendous recovery over the last 18 months, firming up of asset values, compression of cap rates things starting to feel more like 2019 all over again. Is there something out there, you know, with regard to interest rates, geopolitical factors, U.S. debt, Fed activity, kind of giving you a blank slate here that would say, I'm heading for the exits. Like, this is the canary in the coal mine that sends me, like, it's, it's time to start hoarding cash at that point. Is there something like that that you're watching every day that you're saying, God, this is the thing that really keeps me up at night? You got to give Madison doom and gloom. Come on, that's well. <laughs> so I think the there's definitely pockets of overvaluation in the market. And it's been interesting the last four to six weeks to see that if you just look at the headline indices, you know, S&P, NASDAQ, et cetera, yeah, I think the NASDAQ touched down 10% from the all-time high, right? But if you actually look under the surface, there's been a lot of pain in some sectors, a lot of pain. So like the, the stay at home trade is, has really gotten crushed. Like Peloton, I think is down 80% from, from the peak last year. And some of the speculative parts of the cryptocurrency market are, I, I think down 50 plus percent, things like that, where um, the Fed just signaling they're gonna raise rates really change people's view. And I think it just shows you how sensitive people are to what the Fed is doing and how important it is to, to where we are in the cycle. Because like I said earlier, some of the things they've done is unprecedented in, in modern financial history. So they're really walking a fine line. And I think they know that. And if we tighten rates at the same time you do quantitative tightening, the effects are essentially unknown because this hasn't been done before. So I would hope that they do this, you know, kind of slowly and gradually. Um, monetary policy acts with a lag. So I think it's going to take some time to see what the impacts are. Um, but if they don't and they move too fast, that is what would really worry me. And that is the biggest factor I'm, I'm focused on is what is the pace of rate hikes? What are they going to do with quantitative tightening? And then, you know, where does inflation go? Th these are the big things. And my view is after what happened 10 years ago and the taper tantrum and other experiences, they're going to be very cautious, especially with Jerome Powell is pretty signaled. He's, he's overall pretty dovish and understands these concerns. But to me, that's that's the biggest issue. I think the Fed also understands we have a nominal debt problem. Like I said, biggest you know government debt buildup outside of wartime and modern financial history. 
they kind of know what, what they're up against. And uh, I think politically it'd be really, really tough not to stay, you know, at least somewhat more accommodated for longer than people think just to help lower this nominal debt problem. So there is maneuvering down the road if something were to happen. So, and, and that's just not the, the Fed. This is kind of global central banks are all in the same, the same boat with government debt levels and low yields and everyone trying to, you know, kind of walk that tightrope to, to kind of get us through and hopefully not ruin the cycle in the mid part of it. A lot of good conversation. If people have questions, Pasquale, how can they reach out to you uh, to talk to you directly? Yeah, so they can, um, they can email info at pc2capital.com. And we also have a, a website, pc2capital.com, where we have some of the press, we have contact information on there, how to reach us or, you know, through LinkedIn. We, we generally post on LinkedIn uh, updates every now and then. And you can also reach out, reach out through there uh, to my personal LinkedIn or to the company page. And real quickly, we have a couple of shout outs from last week. K.A. Miller, uh, thanks to the Tripwire for your podcast. This is interesting, man. It's the last two episodes on my earphones got me through what he says. And I quote the cinematic torture called Spider-Man. So I'm guessing he actually was listening to the podcast while sitting in the theater watching Spider-Man. I thought Spider-Man got good reviews. I'm surprised that he had to put us on to, to escape from that. I was going to say, isn't that like double torture? He said the theater did have a bar. So maybe, maybe that accounts for it. Uh, Hudson H. And I know Manus, you had a conversation with Hudson, uh, a discussion about frothiness, especially in the multifamily market. Yeah, it was a nice back and forth. You know, we we're debating all the time and, and Pasquale talked about this a little bit, you know, you know, are we at a sub frothy level, a frothy level or a kind of overly exuberant level? Uh, you know, personally, I think, and I, I responded as such uh, to Hunter, which was, you know, I think we have another leg or two of frothiness before this is over, right? In, in 2005, we were kind of at base camp before we saw the nuttiness of 2006 and 2007 and leverage peak up and, and pro forma lending. I don't think we're there. You know, I think a lot of assets are fully priced, um, but I don't think we've kind of gone to nuttiness yet. And, and that's why I think that uh, there's another leg in that somewhere before uh, before we can call it a market top. And time will tell. And we had Rank D ask for a copy report regarding state lease property. Black Eagle, who's an often friend of TREP, mentioned lots of surprises in the last episode, but told us to stay positive. So that's good news. And Grimsby on Twitter liked our guidance on bank earnings, which went out uh, this past week. And we also did release our bank loan performance report for Q3. So if you have an interest in that, reach out to us and we'll send it to you directly. Thank you to our guest, Pasquale Cardone of PC2. And thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week for our Week in Review as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. For more information, visit TREP.com, subscribe to the podcast. And as always, thank you for listening and stay well. All right. 